This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, so uh, these are the individuals who've done the work that I'll present today. I have the privilege of working every day with these talented, dedicated, and wonderful individuals, many of whom are here today. Now, regarding the research environment at UCLA, let me illustrate it to you this way. I have only ever had one job. I came here as a postdoc. My mentors were Steve Martyr and Keith Nectarline, who are here today. I continue to work closely with them, and they have only ever had one job. The lab includes half a dozen junior faculty, four senior faculty, and all of them have only ever had one job. (laughs) This configuration is so rare as to be virtually unheard of, but it happened, it happened here, it happened at UCLA. The rich scientific environment and collaborative culture here at UCLA means that people, people who are quite capable of going elsewhere, want to stay and want to make their discoveries here. And this situation does not arise by accident. It happens because of people who have a vision of a superb research university. We have people here in this hall who are dedicated to establishing, maintaining, enhancing, and protecting the UCLA research environment. Please join me in thanking them. So let's get started. The talk will be divided into two parts, and the first part is um, the social brain, how it works and how it doesn't. So we'll talk about the kind of networks involved with social processing, how they fail in schizophrenia, and I'll make a distinction between ability versus motivation. That's the first part, and it's the part on which uh, most of our research uh, is, has been focused on the last few years. We have a, uh, a lot of data in this first part. The second part's a new direction and consequently has much fewer data associated with it. It's how we extend this to the community, how we would recruit and assess disconnected individuals from the community, and how what we've learned in schizophrenia helps us to understand social disconnection. Although I am the 123rd recipient of this award, and the 123rd person to give this presentation, I am the first to speak about mental illness. As such, the process might not be familiar. The process will be that we start with understanding normative processes, the normal brain in our case, and try to apply it to particular disease. The disease in our case is schizophrenia. And then in the second part, what we'll do is try to take what we learn, any insights from that process, and then apply it to the general population. First, a word about the methods I'll refer to. Um, I'll be referring to two kind of brain-based methods. One is functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. I'll just refer to it as scanning. Uh, Many of you have already had MRIs. This is a particular one in which it detects minor changes in blood flow, and that way you can get an idea of which parts of the brain are active under which particular conditions. So this is a, a, a workhorse 
method for the social neuroscience that we'll be talking about. We also use EEG, so these are scalp recordings of electrical activity, and there's uh, particular patterns that you can observe over particular regions, and consequently, if you average them, you can get particular waves. These would be waves that would be in response to some social stimuli or uh, in particular social processing conditions. So I'll be in today's talk referring to EEG and referring to scanning, and these are the two methods we'll talk about. Because we start with the normal brain, I'm going to give you an example of the kind of neuroscience that can be used to study the normal brain. And in doing so, I'm going to highlight the work of one of our excellent collaborators, Naomi Eisenberger, who's right next door in the Department of Psychology in Franz Hall. So she and her colleagues have become interested in the regions for social pain or social rejection. And this is an uh, interesting area in that it's a little counterintuitive. So, for example, you might think that there's got to be some region that focuses on the kind of pain you feel when you're rejected. But in fact, there's no special reason for, uh, region for that. Instead, evolution was conservative. They say, it said, if it spoke, was something like, I've got a perfectly good way to process pain, physical pain, I'll just use it for social pain. So the regions, and this is not something you can intuit, it's something you have to scan, the regions associated with physical pain are actually the same as with this kind of social pain or social rejection. And if that's so, then you should be able to manipulate them both, and you can. So for example, Tylenol can work on both physical pain and on social pain. So again, confirming that these are uh, overlapping regions, that there's something conservative about this. Now, you're probably wondering how one studies social rejection in the scanner. It's, 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 you know, it, it's not like you can have someone in the scanner and have their girlfriend break up with them. You have to sort of manipulate this a little bit. So this is done, uh, Naomi and her uh, colleagues do this with a, a game called Cyberball, in which there's a cover story. The cover story is that um, you're in the scanner, you're, you're tossing a ball with two other individuals that are somewhere else on campus or somewhere else. They're able to decide where to throw the ball. You can decide then, you know, when you get it, to pass it to this person or this person so you have the little figures representing the other people you're playing with. And so this is going on for some period of time. And then, all of a sudden, things change a little bit. What happens is that the two other people pass the ball back and forth to themselves, and you're excluded. Now, you might think, well, that's not much of a social exclusion because I don't even know these people, and these are just cartoons I'm looking at, and I'm in a scanner anyway, but it works. It works. In other words, you can get activation of the regions with this kind of manipulation. The regions involved with this, and let me pause here for just a minute and say that I know, since I've spoken enough, that about half of you really want to know where in the brain these events are occurring. And the other half of you really would like me to skip that part. So, <laughs> so what I'll be doing is something in between, which is that I'll identify the regions, I won't dwell on them, I won't talk about the connections or the networks, so that they'll be identified, but we won't spend a lot of time. The regions then associated with both social pain and physical pain is this uh, dorsal part of the anterior cingulate cortex, as well as the anterior part of the insula. So those are these uh, regions that serve this kind of dual purpose. So, that's sort of an example of how we would uh, benefit from the advances 
that our colleagues are doing with the normal brain. But we want to apply it to schizophrenia. So I'm going to intersperse from time to time quizzes into this talk. And you have to, you don't have to do anything, but you can guess if you want. So schizophrenia is a myth, a personal journey, journey of discovery, a disease with clear diagnostic criteria, or a spectrum of features. It's been called all of these. It's not a myth. Um, that was an older, somebody irresponsible notion. It's certainly uh, very real to those of us who study it and those of us who have it uh, in family members. Um, it's not a personal journey of discovery. That's an overly romanticized notion. But that notion does pop up from time to time. So neither first or second are correct. It's actually both three and four. It's both the disease with diagnostic criteria and it's a spectrum. And you might say, well, it can't really be both of those. And sort of, kind of, yes, it is. The, the thing is that a, a diagnosis is always categorical. You either have it or you don't have the diagnosis. Um, and so we'll be talking about the kind of criteria that are used to diagnose schizophrenia. But we know and have known for a long time that there's a spectrum of schizophrenia, meaning that you can have a tendency to it. You can have a little bit of it. You can have a watered-down version of it. It's, so even below that sort of severity threshold, you can have these kinds of tendencies. In the first part of the talk, I'll be focusing on diagnostic schizophrenia. On the second part of the talk, I'll be focusing more on this notion of a spectrum where you can have a little bit of it, but not meet the criteria. So... The diagnosis of schizophrenia is a, it's not one thing, you have to have a bunch of things. So I'll just spend a minute on this so that you, um, so that when we go forward you know what I'm referring to. So you need at least two of these uh, symptoms. Some of these are, should be familiar to you. So delusions would be false beliefs that the person holds on to. They could be um, suspiciousness that you, they think people are out to get them or grandiose that they have unusual abilities or it could be uh, bizarre that aliens from another planet are affecting them. Hallucinations are hearing things that aren't there or seeing things that aren't there no one else sees. Um, and in schizophrenia, it's most commonly the hearing voices that we come. A disorganized speech is actually a breakdown in the form of speech. So it's not exactly what someone's saying. It's the structure of speech breaks down so that it's hard to actually understand how the language is structured. Disorganized behavior is anything that appears to be odd. So it does, it's not just appears to be threatening or appears to be uh, uncomfortable. It appears to be odd. And frankly, you don't have to go that far. You can observe it in Westwood Village. So this is, these are the kinds of things that think, make you think someone's not entirely there. Negative symptoms are attracting a lot of uh, interest from our group, have been for years. These are what you lose with the disease. In other words, it's the lack of something, the lack of expression, the lack of motivation. Anhedonia is the lack of wanting to do something, having that oomph to sort of go out and give something a try. So these are negative symptoms, and you don't need all of these, you just need two. You also need social work dysfunction, and there has to be a minimum duration. This is true for everyone with the diagnosis. There's a bunch of exclusions which aren't critical for this discussion. 
The first three symptoms here are, by definition, psychotic symptoms. So when people talk about a psychosis, psychotic symptoms, psychotic features, they're talking about these first three things here. And most people will say something like, yeah, but I know someone who has some of these features and they don't have schizophrenia. And the answer is, that's right. These are psychotic features that could appear in a range of psychiatric or neurological conditions. It's when you have the whole package that you have the diagnosis of schizophrenia. The um, work and social dysfunction is where we're going to be focused because this is where we have our serious impairment in functioning. Schizophrenia is disabling. It's one of the most disabling disorders for men and women throughout the world. This social dysfunction is substantial. It's a big problem. And consequently, we want to understand what the brain basis is for this very large concern that our patients have terrific difficulty in integrating the community and maintaining these kinds of social functions. So we want to understand what the brain processes are that underlie these. Now, our lab has spent... um, a fair amount of time identifying processes, these are essentially brain systems, that are relevant for social functioning, that we can image or scan or EEG or whatever, um, that we can study them with brain-based methods. And these tend to have sub-processes. So at this point, I realized that like this is too much, and you'd say, I don't want to hear about all this stuff. We study all of this stuff. Our lab has worked in all of those boxes, but it'd be tedious to go through them. So we'll go through uh, an example of social cue perception, which is faces. We'll uh, talk about experience sharing. We'll talk about mentalizing. We'll talk about emotion regulation, and then we'll move on from there. So let's talk about social cue perception. So that's the first process we'll talk about. We get cues from all kinds of things. We get cues from emotion and faces, intonation and voices, gait, gestures. We pick up cues. We do it fairly easily. And um, the people with schizophrenia who we work with don't do it as easily. They have trouble in picking up these cues. There's very large group differences between individuals with schizophrenia controls and how accurate they are in identifying, for example, the emotion in faces. So you use this, you use this ability and you don't think about it because it's too uh, straightforward. But uh, here's an example then that we can, like, let's consider Little Red Riding Hood. I mean, Little Red Riding Hood definitely looks fearful. You can tell that without much effort. She's not using, by the way, prototypic fear expressions, but she's using subtle versions of those fear expressions. When you came here to Schoenberg Hall, you walked in, you passed faces. You passed faces, and you knew that you would come into this hall and find a place to sit, and you were going to find a place to sit by looking at faces. But when you got into the hall, you might realize that it's a little harder to identify individual faces from a distance. So you had to get closer. When you got closer, a couple things happened. One is you identified people you knew, or you identified faces that were welcoming. You did that, and I don't think any of you gave it any thought. But it's a big deal. It's a process that you've mastered, and it enables you to function well socially. 
The regions associated with this, particularly for face processing, are the fusiform gyrus here, the amygdala here. These regions are more associated with other types of cue perception, including uh, the uh, superior temporal sulcus. So those would be like identifying emotion in voices. But these are the two main regions, amygdala and fusiform, for identifying emotion in faces. So I've already pointed out that our, pa our patients aren't great at doing this. What do the, uh, the scans tell us? These data, this isn't from our lab, although we've done work in this area. This is a meta-analysis, a meta-analysis where you put a bunch of studies together and see what the studies collectively are telling you. Uh, in this, we have group differences in which the uh, individuals with schizophrenia do not activate when they're looking at emotional faces as much in the amygdala and the fusiform, the two regions that I just mentioned to you. So they're not doing this as much in the particular contrast. They're, they're, not, they're not sort of calling on these areas that are for face emotion processing. The blue regions actually are where they're doing more activity. It's kind of like they're activating more in regions that are not typically associated with face processing, and they're not activating enough in the regions that are associated with identifying emotion in faces. So we see now at a performance level and at a brain-based level that this is an area of which there's some difficulty in our patients. Here's another quiz for you. What does your brain say when you look at this photo? Let me think. If I had my arms in that position and was hunched over, I'd probably be feeling abdominal discomfort. Mm, that really hits me in the gut. Since that person is not me, I will actively try to not feel any pain. The answer is two. The answer is two. We do this reflexively. Now, you can certainly do one, and you can certainly do three, but that's not the first thing you're going to do. You actually have to try to do those. The, but the sort of gut connection that you get, that's fast, that's automatic, and that's part of experience sharing. So experience sharing is this amazing ability that we have which is that when we observe others' behaviors, it leads us to experience neuroactivation as if we are doing those behaviors. This is one of the most remarkable things about our brains. I mean, you, our brains, when, they, when we observe someone moving or feeling something, we get activation as if we ourselves are experiencing or behaving that way. I mean, this, you know, we, we all sit in different chairs, in different bodies, in different skins, and we feel very, very different. But this part of the brain reaches out and senses what's around it. And there's two flavors to experience sharing. It's important to keep them separate. One is motor resonance, which is this sharing that occurs when we see people move, when we see a movement, so a motor action. And affect sharing is what happens when we see someone experiencing an emotion, oftentimes a distressful emotion. So, for example, here are some uh, examples of when we feel this kind of experience sharing. Here's another example of when we see someone in pain, we sense that. We get that automatic feeling. We feel the pain even if we inflicted the pain. So, um, so here's an example of a German POW being treated by an American medic. Those of us who are parents are really, really good at feeling kids' pain. We do this so automatically, it's so beyond our control that we feel our pet's pain. And the regions that do this 
include the, um, for the motor resonance, that movement part, the inferior parietal lobe and the premotor cortex, and those are the regions that are associated with the mirror neuron system. The regions associated with affect sharing, this kind of I feel your pain, those are different regions, so these are two different systems. Um, but this is the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and the anterior insula. So how do you study this? Because this is, this, is this is a bit difficult to study because you're experiencing, you have to measure how someone is experiencing something. So we've used a, an approach um, with EEG. The, the study I'm presenting was Bill Horan's study from our lab. Uh, mu is a frequency that you measure with EEG. It occurs in a you know, certain range, certain electrodes. Um, and it has this really amazing quality, which is that it sort of tracks with how social something is. So if you're observing things and there's a sort of, imagine a social ladder, that as you're observing stimuli and the stimuli become more and more social, you actually suppress mu more and more. So the more something becomes social, the less mu you have. So you can study this with EEG. So for example, you might show people uh, bouncing balls, which is not social, and that's our control condition observe a moving hand, which isn't social, but it's kind of like that motor resonance thing I was talking about. How about moving your own hand? That, again, isn't terribly social. That's more like the kind of a motor resonance, but it at least involves another person, or your, in this case, you. But then you can show videos of people watching people that are not interacting. So they're people, but it's not that social because they're not interacting. Or you can watch people as they're interacting, which is more social. Or then you can watch people as if they're throwing a ball to you. So as if they're including you in that. So you can think of that as a kind of social ladder or hierarchy in which the mu frequency should become more and more suppressed as we go up to these stimuli. And what we see in healthy controls is exactly that. We see this tendency to sort of show more and more suppression uh, as the stimuli become more and more social. So the question is, what do our patients show? And the answer is almost the same thing. So this is an area in which when we, 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 have, a system, we have a paradigm that works, the controls do exactly what we expect them to do, and our patients look like controls. And we see this now, not only in EEG, but also with fMRI. When we look at this experience sharing component, we don't find big differences between patients and controls. It's an area that's relatively intact. It might be that there's some subtle differences, entirely possible. But considering that it's so easy to find impairment in some areas, this is an area that's at least relatively intact. And that's important. It's important to identify areas of strengths in schizophrenia, so that we know what to build on. So now that's experience sharing. The next topic will be mentalizing. Um, mentalizing uh, goes by many names. It's also called theory of mind or mental state attribution. And it's the ability to infer the mental states of other people, including their intentions, their beliefs, their emotions. I mean, as we go through our, our social world, we need to take other people's viewpoints into account to make good guesses as to what's going on in their minds. And this is an ability that our patients have considerable difficulty with. So we have large differences between patients and controls. They have trouble with these kind of inferences. Being able to 
Put yourself in someone else's shoes. Take someone else's perspective. Make inferences about what someone else is thinking. This is actually an area in which our, our, our guys have some difficulty. So in terms of examples of mentalizing, because you, as I mentioned, when you just identify emotion and faces, normally that's pretty easy. But what if it's not? Like, for example, kids eating ice cream are always happy. So if the kid was smiling, I wouldn't be thinking about it, but the kid's not smiling. So it makes you wonder what's going on. So at that point, you have to move into something that requires a little bit of inference. Sometimes faces are intentionally ambiguous. Sometimes they're just utterly perplexing. Sometimes you need to do detective work to figure out what's going on. Sometimes you don't have enough information, and so you need to gather enough information to sort of understand what might be going on. Um, and so this is this process of mentalizing, and it's this area in which we have performance problems. There is a very well-identified mentalizing network, which includes the temporal parietal junction, the temporal pole, the precuneus here on the medial surface, and the medial prefrontal cortex also on the medial. So the question becomes, uh, the question becomes then, if we want to study this in the scanner, how do we do that? And so uh, Jung-Hee Lee from our lab uh, did an experiment in which we created a situation or which we presented individuals the situation in which there's a false belief. So I can just read this for you. John told Emily that he had a Porsche. Uh, actually, his car is a Ford. Emily doesn't know anything about cars, though, so she believed John. When Emily sees John's car, she thinks it's A. And it's not a hard question to answer, but you need to suspend what you know to be true and take Emily's perspective. Contrast that with uh, Amy made a painting of a treehouse three years ago when it was blue. That was before the storm. We built a new treehouse last summer, but we painted it red instead. The treehouse in the painting is, and again, you need to suspend what you know to be currently true to say what's true in the picture. The thing about these is that these are very similar in terms of cognitive processes, the the first condition and the second condition. But they're not at all similar in terms of a social process. The human mind enters into that false belief condition. It doesn't really enter into the false picture condition. So if I contrast these two, or if Jung-Hee does, we should expect to see something about this mentalizing system, and we do. We see it in... Uh, the key regions, we see it in the controls. We see it a little bit in the patients as well, but you can see they're they're, they're substantially less active than what we have in our uh, controls. So here again, kind of like with social cue recognition or face identification, uh, face emotion identification, we have a situation in which we have performance differences and we also have activation differences between patients and controls. The last of these uh, boxes I'll talk about is emotion regulation. Emotion regulation are processes by which people influence which emotion is experienced, when it's experienced, and how it's experienced. And the most uh, extensively studied one is called cognitive reappraisal, which is when you change your interpretations or appraisals of stimuli to alter an emotional response. So I know that that's not intuitive, but I can try to make it intuitive. The example I like to use is... I'm not crazy about flying anymore, and I don't think most people are. And so I use that as an example of how this sort of cognitive reappraisal might become handy. I mean, the reasons why I 
most of us don't like flying is there's these long lines to deal with. There's really crowded cabins. There's food that's not. And, uh, and there's like noise and stuff like that. And so the question, but we fly, we still fly. We're, we're not, I mean, these are stressful things. We still fly. So how do we manage to keep our composure and not, and not just scream at the frustrations that we encounter on these flights because they're pretty routine. And the answer is we use emotion regulation, we use cognitive appraisal because we say to ourselves something like, this is only temporary, soon I'll be at UCLA. <laughs> ah. And then we get through it without acting out. So this is sort of uh, a, a common technique. So the regions associated with this include lateral regions here, the dorsolateral and ventrolateral regions, as well as the amygdala. And this is a reciprocal relationship. Essentially, the lateral regions are telling the amygdala to be quiet. Um, and, and so that there's an inverse relationship between the two. Now, how do you study it? This is another study from Bill Horan. Uh, in which this is an EEG study, you see pictures and you record EEG waves. You record scalp uh, from scalp electrodes. So this is an edible mushroom. It's a boring picture. It's a boring phrase. This is a poisonous snake that is very dangerous. That's a scary picture. That's a scary phrase. This snake it, that is completely harmless. It doesn't even have teeth. It's the same picture. Okay, it's the same picture, but do you think saying something like this is going to make a difference? The answer is it does. It might, you might not think so, but we can measure the EEG activity from your brain, and your brain tells us that it made a difference. So, for example, this is the uh, late positive potential. It's one of the things that Bill and, and other members of our lab study. The red line is consistently above the blue line. These are the same pictures. Okay? The red line is not regulated. The blue line is when you have those neutral phrases. The snake's harmless. This is just a movie scene. Nobody got hurt. Whatever. There's ways of sort of, sort of calming down the emotional response to negative pictures. So even though in the case of controls, the red line's above the blue line, in the case of patients, it's not. There's not much of a difference, and when the waves depart, they part in the wrong direction. So this is another example where we're seeing some between-group differences. So back to our boxes. These are the four areas that I talked about today. Um, and we can start characterizing the landscape in terms of what's impaired and what's intact. And this is important for any condition, particularly a serious condition like schizophrenia, to be able to identify which processes look like they're working well and which ones look like they're not. And this helps us understand sort of how we can develop intervention programs and how we can build upon those strengths. The last comment about this, this first part, about the studies, is that there's another part of the social brain that we haven't talked about because we don't understand how to study it very well. And that's social motivation. Now, this is the distinction between the abilities that I just talked about and wanting to. So you can have a situation in which somebody says, My, I have no trouble identifying emotion in faces. I have no trouble with mentalizing. I have no trouble with emotion regulation. I just don't want to be with people. I don't feel like it. I don't, it's not that I have a problem doing it or processing it or identifying the cues. 
I just don't want to do it. So this is a separation between the ability and the motivation. And there's two flavors of motivation. One is the motivation to approach other people. The other is the motivation to avoid other people. And I know all of you are thinking, why do you guys make life so complicated? is isn't just the same thing in reverse. And the answer is no, these are two different systems. So we have to be studied separately. In schizophrenia, the social anhedonia actually has been studied for quite some time. It's, the, it's one of these negative symptoms, uh, that this sort of lack of enjoyment of social things. Um, it's uh, a long-standing feature, a uh, uh, focus of schizophrenia. Um, it's a trait feature. It's part of the schizophrenia spectrum, so we're, we're back to the spectrum concept. It exists in people who have risk for schizophrenia and also in individuals before they become schizophrenia in these prodromal states. So this is something that's received a lot of attention, but we have some scientific challenges to deal with. One is individuals with schizophrenia might not want to do things whether they're social or not. They might not want to read books or go to movies or do things that aren't particularly social. So how do we separate out things that are social from non-social? The other thing is that we want to study this in the brain. We want to study it in the scanner. And that's not a terribly easy thing to do. Sometimes to get the brain to reveal its secrets, you have to sneak up on it. And that's what Jung Hee Lee from our lab did. She snuck up on the brain. This is what she did. She set up a paradigm in which there's slot machines. Okay, there's three different slot machines, and they come out in pairs, and you have to pick which slot machine you want. You're not told which slot machine is good or not good. You have to figure it out yourself. As it turns out, one is good, which means most of the time it gives you a payout, but not always. The other is bad, which meaning that most of the time it doesn't give you a payout or takes something away. And the other one is completely neutral. It does it one-third of the time it's good, one-third of the time it's bad, and one-third of the time it doesn't matter. So, but you're not told that. This is called probabilistic learning. It approximates how we learn in real life. And so this is um, a, a way of sort of getting people to learn things without actually telling them. There, and Jung-hee was sneaky in a, in a second way, which is that she manipulated the type of reward. So sometimes it was an image of money gained or money lost, and sometimes it was a smiling, inviting face, and sometimes it was an angry face. And so the, su the subject would choose between two, and so the, the better choice, of course, is to pick a good machine over a neutral one to gain something, or a neutral machine over a bad one to avoid losing something. But now you can look at the effect that type of reward had when those decisions are being made. The regions that are associated with this are the ventral striatum and the uh, ventral medial prefrontal cortex. These are common areas for social motivation. And so here I'll show you some data. It's imaging data, but it's graphs so that you can see the magnitude of the response. There's the ventral striatum, and you can see that for non-social or social reward, the healthy controls don't make that much of a difference. Same thing for the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. Those are the two regions we talked about. They, they show a little more, whatever you want to call it, activity, responsivity, sensitivity to the social stimuli, but it's not a big difference. Look at our patients. Our pa and this is a significant interaction. Our patients are not responding to the social rewards. 
uh, as much as they are to the non-social ones, and they differ from healthy controls in this regard. So this gives you some idea as to how you might start teasing apart not just the abilities, which is what we've been focused on for so long, but the sense of motivation to engage in one's social world, which is also important for social functioning. That ends the first part of the discussion, and so I'll move on to the second part, which is a bit shorter because it's new and I don't have as much data to show you. So what we'll do is we'll, this way you get to see something in which we have a fair amount of data and, and as well as things that, that give an indication as to what direction we're going in. So we're now in a situation where we want to take anything that we've learned in schizophrenia and apply it to the general public, to public health. So, in order to do that, I have another quiz for you. Having friends is bad for your health? I mean, after all, who needs the aggravation? <laughs> Has no effect on your health? Has a slight beneficial, on your, uh, beneficial effect on your health because they nag you to eat well, exercise, that sort of thing. Means that you have a 50% higher chance of being alive in seven years if you're in mid-60s. Correct. This is the size of the effect of being socially connected. So the construct of interest is social disconnection, which is objective, long-standing lack of contact with friends, contact with community groups, contact with family, but it's objective. We'll talk about subjective in a minute. It's really prevalent in individuals with men severe mental illness, uh, obviously, schizophrenia is not the only one, but schizophrenia is the disease we focus on. And as I've mentioned, social dysfunction is a huge issue uh, for the disorder, and it leads to international levels of, of disability. But it's also commonly observed in the general community. Um, and it's a public health problem. So, first of all, what do we mean by the general community? We're not fancy here. We just mean that we didn't use clinics. We didn't use referrals. We just get people sort of unselected um, through, any, through no particular referral network. Uh, how much social disconnection is there in the general community? No one's really sure, but it's about 5 to 10%. It's not trivial. It's not trivial. That's the number of people that say they don't have confidants. Um, is it increasing in the U.S.? Probably is. I mean, there's a feeling that it's increasing, but the data does support that the social network size is decreasing over the last few decades. Um, is this a problem because of social networking or, uh, or online connections? And, uh, and does it help or hurt? And the answer, it can do both. It, it, this doesn't seem to be a strong directional thing. In other words, the, the social networking can help people who want to be connected, can hurt people who don't. It, this doesn't seem to be the reason for the trend. So it's not something we can blame on the, the rise of social networks. Now, social disconnection is very different from loneliness. Loneliness is the subjective evaluation of social interactions, right? So, so loneliness is how you feel about your connections. Social disconnection is an objective rating of how connected you are. Um, and uh, the loneliness is associated um, with depression, and it's not strongly correlated with social disconnection. The correlation's about 0.25, so this is a really modest correlation. And if you think about it for a minute, if you think about it for a minute, it might not surprise you that people can be surrounded by people and still be lonely. 
And it might not surprise you that many of our individuals with schizophrenia are not around other people and don't feel lonely. So the fact that this is a low correlation sort of makes sense when you think about different individuals. Now, what do we know about the social disconnection and early mortality? I mean, let's be realistic here. You know, what about smoking? What about obesity? You know, what about poverty? I mean, I have enough, you know, public health things to worry about. Do I really have to worry about social disconnection? And these data indicate you do. Anything to the right of the vertical line is bad for you. And, you can, and, the, and the further right, the worse it is. And social disconnection, the, the two lines are because we have two, one line for men and one line for women. And social disconnection is at the same level of risk for early mortality as poor health at baseline, smoking, poverty, and it's higher than obesity and hypertension. This is one large study, but this comes across in many studies. So if this is such a big deal, you could say, Michael, okay, I understand you're concerned about it, but if this is such a big deal, how come we don't hear like a warning from the Surgeon General or something like that? We got one. In response to a question about the biggest disease in America, Surgeon General Murthy, that's the former Surgeon General, says it's not cancer. It's not heart disease. It's isolation. It's the pronounced isolation that so many people are experiencing that is the great pathology of our lives today. By isolation, he means both subjective and objective. So he's talking about both social disconnection uh, as well as loneliness. So this is an area of concern. But then there's this question like, if you want to study this, if you really want to study this, there's, there's a ton of people doing this. I mean, there's people in public health, there's people in sociology, there's people in epidemiology, and they've done a wonderful job of showing the extent of the problem and the consequences of the problem for health and mortality. But if you want to know what's causing the social disconnection, if you want to know what's leading to it, if you want to know the brain base, the within-subject factors that lead to this, then you have to come to someone like us. This is what we've been doing in schizophrenia, so we can try to use the same approach in the general population. But then that raises another problem, which is how do you recruit a sample with social disconnection? They're disconnected. So how do you actually get them in? So after giving this a fair amount of thought, we realized we can place an ad on Craigslist. And, it, and we did. Do you have few friends, little contact with family members, and typically do activities alone? And we get a lot of phone calls. And you can say, yeah, Michael, but let's be realistic. You're only getting a subset of this sort of universe of socially disconnected individuals, people who are online and people willing to come in for a research study. We know that. Okay, we know that we're getting a subset. But this is the approach we've used. We have other approaches that we'll use going forward. So now, what do I do, since this is a new area, how do I present data to you that I'm not going to suddenly regret presenting publicly uh, when, when something changes? The thing is that we have two independent samples at this point. We have a pilot study that we did to demonstrate that we could recruit these individuals. It was a feasibility study. And we also have one ongoing study that's quite large, but we're just beginning it. But that gives us essentially a replication sample. 
So, and we have over 50 self-identified individuals uh, that are disconnected. So people that say that they're disconnected. So we have now enough experience with this. So for the next uh, few minutes, what I'll do is I'll present to you anything that we've seen in both samples. We're just like any other research group. If we see something twice, we take it seriously. So here's my last... Uh, uh, before I go on, let me give you an example because you might not have a sense for what these individuals are like. Um, TL is a 49-year-old single female. At the time of the interview, she was living alone in an apartment, employed sporadically as a TV extra, and intermittently collecting unemployment disability. She completed college with a degree in French language and culture. She reported she loves being an actress and feels like dressing up and playing all day is her way of participating in society. She spent her time exercising, watching cooking and travel shows, baking and running errands. When asked why she responded to the study ad, she stated, I have few friends and I prefer to be alone. Further, she reported that she had never been in a close romantic relationship but would like a significant other. On measures of social disconnection, she endorsed low levels of social approach motivation and moderate levels of loneliness. She endorsed some personality disorder traits, including preferring to do things alone because it makes her more efficient, and expressing ambivalence about physical intimacy, but she, she did not meet criteria for personality disorder. If this sounds like someone who might be somewhat familiar, the answer is given the base rates, you probably do know people who are disconnected. And we have a number of case studies that are all sort of different versions of people who are just okay not being with other people. So here's my last quiz for you. People with social disconnection from the general community have reduced social processing, right, those abilities, social cue detection, mentalizing, and reduced social motivation. They have reduced social processing and normal social motivation. They have the reverse of that, normal social processing and reduced social motivation, or they have normal both, social processing and normal. And, and normal social motivation? And the answer is, I'm not telling you. Because, <laughs> because you have to pay attention for the next three minutes, and, and then you'll get your answer. So, this is, again, the things that we found in two samples that I feel comfortable enough sharing with you, even though we don't have huge samples. Are the people we uh, recruit really socially disconnected? Yes, they are. We have a number of ways of measuring it, and this gives you some sense. This is a combination of social disconnection scales that occurs in the context of a lengthy interview. And you can see that this sample, this disconnected sample, is much more shifted to the left. This is our comparison sample. They're not selected to be connected. They're just not selected for any particular social quality. So you can think of them as unselected, right? They're, they're not selected to, be, to have a lot of friends. They're just, we just don't mention it in the ad. But this is a pretty big difference. Um, do they have autistic tendencies? Rare. Only one out of the greater than 50 was in the autism spectrum. We were surprised. We thought we would get more individuals in autistic spectrum. Were they lonely? Only about a third. So, you know, some loneliness but not the majority. Did they have impairments in social ability? We've given a bunch of tests. Social cue perception, including face emotion, mentalizing, empathic abilities, emotion regulation. They're completely normal. Across two studies, they're completely normal. They have no apparent deficits in these social processing abilities. 
Surprise number two. Did they have impairment in social motivation? Yes, most definitely. Here you can see the approach motivation, and they're shifted significantly to the left. They're just less willing to approach. And this is across a number of items, that they're just not as willing to engage. In terms of avoidance, are they more willing to avoid? The answer is not really. It's about, uh, you know, it's not significantly different. It's not that impressive. But in terms of reduction in approach, it's definitely there. So now we have a pattern in which there is, in fact, a big difference in motivation, even though there's not a big difference in terms of uh, the abilities. Did they use online social networking? much less than our comparison group. So this is sort of across different ways of assessing it. They're just not that engaged, whether online or in person. Were they in the schizophrenia spectrum? Now we're back to the spectrum. The answer is many of them were. And this is really stunning. There's two lines of evidence to indicate that we have tendencies in the schizophrenia spectrum in our disconnected sample. One is that we have high rates of personality disorders, um, that are considered to be in the spectrum disorder, schizotypal, paranoid. These are about one in three of the participants met diagnostic criteria for a personality disorder in the spectrum. In addition, uh, you can give a personality scale, and there's two personality factors that are uh, uh, linked to the schizophrenia spectrum, and both are inflated in our disconnected sample. Now, one of them is detachment, and that's nice but not terribly informative because they were selected to be disconnected. So in some ways, an elevation in detachment means that it kind of confirms our recruitment. But we also had an elevation in psychoticism. These are like low-level symptoms of unusual perceptual beliefs, unusual, uh, unusual perceptions, illusions, uh, unusual beliefs, unusual behaviors. We didn't select for that, but we got it anyway. So think how this played out, which is we left schizophrenia to go into the general community to see if we could understand social disconnection in the community, but now we're finding schizophrenia spectrum evidence in the general community. I mean, if this were a novel, this would be irony, but it's not a novel, so we just sort of say, gee, that's a big surprise. So this is sort of where we are now, which is uh, we're taking these data as trying to understand the patterns. We're also in the process of collecting EEG and fMRI data. So we have uh, quite a ways to go in this study. We'll have more evidence about the, um, uh, about the brain basis for these. But at this point, and this is my last slide, let me zoom out for a second, because I want to talk about the process. We started out with a really big problem. We were interested in schiz... I mean, if you're going to spend years on something, it might as well be a big problem. We spent... We, we focused on schizophrenia because of the social disability, the social disconnection, and how that's a large part of social disability worldwide for both men and women. We learned from colleagues who study normal individuals or normal brains. That's not our skill set. We work with people, like here in the Department of Psychology, who understand normal brains so that we can find relevant networks. We take those insights and then use them to understand what happens in a disease. That's our focus. We want to understand what's going on in schizophrenia. As clinical researchers, that's our focus. But then we can loop back and take those insights 
and use them to understand another really big problem. In this case, it's a public health problem. In this case, it's social disconnection in the general population. I want to acknowledge the work represented here. This is our team also with the second generation, next generation represented. Bill Horan, Jung-Hee Lee, and Jonathan Wynn contributed a lot of the studies. Amanda McCleary and Felice Reddy also contributed to this presentation. I want to acknowledge my real family, my, my, profe my professional family, and all of the friends and colleagues who came here today. Thank you very much. Very nice uh, presentation. I'm just curious if, if you could, might discuss how depression fits in with the social disconnection problem in the yeah. general public. Are they correlated with each other? Um, so, the, what, um, we don't have a great answer for you right now. Depression most definitely is part of loneliness, and loneliness, and the Cousin Center here is one of the uh, outstanding places to study this, loneliness has its own public health risk associated with it. So it's like being objectively disconnected or subjectively um, uh, disconnected with loneliness. Both are, uh, have poor health indicators. But th that's, we think depression's more aligned with the lonely uh, component, whereas um, the spectrum, schizophrenia spectrum, more with the um, disconnection. But we don't have a firm handle on that. And we know that uh, several of our disconnected people have a history of depression, although they don't have it at the time. And, and it's not nearly as common as those um, spectrum personality disorders that we find. It's an excellent question um, that we're just beginning to get our, uh, wrap our arms around. Can um, uh, schizophrenia be inherited? Um, I'd love to know who I'm talking to. Is okay, right over here. Oh, okay, there we go. Okay. Um, okay, so, so um, this, like many uh, complex disorders, has a genetic risk factor associated with it. Um, but it's not deterministic. It, it puts one at risk. And so there's a lot of work now in identifying those particular risk genes. You showed, I think, the answer to your last quiz. You never gave us the answer. <laughs> not, ex not explicitly. Uh -huh. But the answer was the abilities are um, intact, but the social motivation is missing in the right. social dis disconnection group. That differs from the schizophrenia group in that both yeah. of those exactly. are abnormal. What do we know so far about when? So that implies yeah. that you don't develop schizophrenia unless you also develop the social cognitive ability it's problems. Right. What do we know so far about when those social cognitive abilities start going down? Yeah. So, so that was Keith Nachterlein asking, uh, as usual, a perceptive uh, question. <laughs> You would think that after, you know, 30 years of talking with him, we would have, like, worked these things out. <laughs> um, so, but the, the point is a very good one, and I didn't actually close the loop as well as I could have, which is that um, there is a contrast in which we, we're sort of down on abilities and motivation in the clinical condition, but we're only down on motivation in this community. Um, and when do things start is, depends on the social processing domain. So, for example, Jung-Hee's study of this kind of 
focus on social versus non-social reward, that starts in infancy, or it should start in infancy. That sort of gut connection, that should start in infancy. Mentalizing, much later. And, and so it's, it's interesting then that we do have this kind of uh, intact process for this experience sharing, which should start early, but we don't seem to have intact at the, at the brain level not at the performance level, but at the brain level, with something else that should have started earlier. So the answer is it's not falling neatly. It's not falling neatly into sort of early versus late developing. Thank you for your questions. On behalf of the Academic Senate, it is indeed my pleasure to express gratitude to all who made this lecture possible. Professor Green, thank you for providing such an extraordinary and stimulating lecture. Thank you to the Special Events Office and faculty who serve on the Faculty Research Lectureship Selection Committee. Without your work, this event would not be possible. It's been a pleasure being with you this afternoon. I now invite everyone to join us at the reception taking place in Schoenberg Terrace immediately after the lecture. Thank you and have a good evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.